Marcus is an absolute legend. I've been coaching this dude for about four years and I had to get him on here because this, this interview is going to be perfect for any bloke who wants to succeed more in business, succeed more in family life, just crush life in general. Marcus is, is exemplary of that. I mean, let's just look at the dude. He's doing $25 million a year in his business, going on 40, right? This dude knows how to run a successful business. He employs 120 guys and he gets resumes slapped on his desk every single day. People want to work for him because he's such a good leader. He's jacked. He's like six foot three and 100 kilos and shredded. He has a wonderful, wonderful partner by the name of Megan. She's a beautiful human being. I've had the pleasure of coaching her as well. And then also on top of that, he's a very, very good arm wrestler of all things. The dude is a savage and he dominates in every single area of his life. This is perfect for any bloke who is a business owner and wants to get better, any guy who wants to become more successful within their career and as a man, and anyone who wants to learn the mindset and the thought principles that it takes in order to maintain such a high level of performance in all areas of life. So without further ado, let's go jump into the uh, interview with Marcus and let's go through and uncover some of the secrets which he's learned over the years to dominating. Thanks for coming on, brother. James, how are you? It's good to be back. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's good to have you on. Dude, I, I wanted to get you on because you do some really cool shit. Like, and some of the most like outlandish weird stuff. I like when I um like talk with a lot of guys who come to work with us, I, I often reference this bloke who runs a business that's doing $25 million in turnover. You drive really fucking fast cars, you're a near professional arm wrestler, and you just do a heap of unbelievable, crazy shit in your life while managing having a beautiful partner in Megan and then two stepkids as well. One thing I'd love to start and where I'd love to take this man is like, where did you start? Like, I mean, if you look at Nortec, it's a massive business. Like that is a big time business and it's growing absolutely rapidly. You got what, a hundred blokes working for you at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, we've brought on probably 120 guys now in the last four months made into that contract in Illawarra. Mm. And that's just that's just the start of that work at the moment. We're actually in the ramp up phase of, of servicing that client. Mm. So that part of the business is really moving along quite nicely. And so, like in terms of the start of it, man, like can you tell us a little bit about Nortec and like the roots of it and where it actually all began for you? I guess to when you look back at the real core of it, mate, where it really started was in my childhood. Like as I grew up, my father he ran his own business. He ran an electrical contracting company up in Townsville. Mm. And it was quite successful as well. He serviced uh, a number of hard rock mines and he also did some work through Indonesia there for quite some time. Mm. So my dad was always that person that could, mate, to put it lightly. He, to me, he was a solo man. I have this vivid flashback of when I was really young, he built me this racing balsa wood boat, hand-built this thing. It took him like three or four months, mate. We took it down the river and we set this thing up. And this is before remote controls were actually the rage. So it was had a manual prop on the back we set it off and off it goes and it hits a lily out in the middle of the river and it fucking takes off, mate, off it goes. And there's a tear behind this thing sailing off into the sunset and my dad rips off his shirt. And there's a, literally a sign there which says croc infested waters and he goes after the boat. So that's where it all started, mate. It was that That's the sort of stuff that I was exposed to as a child, you know. Yeah, it Nothing makes you look tame. You know? Yeah, it does, yeah. Just to fast forward from there, mate, I guess the big thing was I, I started in the mines up in Queensland. I worked for a large mining contract of a large mining company that was MIM. So that was Oakey Creek Coal. And I came out of that apprenticeship not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do at that stage. But I landed in the contracting world and I went and worked for a, another small electrical mining contractor. And when I got into that realm of work, I realised this is a side of the fence I wanted to be on. Like I said, there was a lot of movement. There was a lot of opportunity in that market. So I spent that next 12 months working for that gentleman. And in that time, I scraped me pennies and dollars, mate, and put them aside and got to that stage where I could go and just sell myself personally. I guess that's like most entrepreneurs, mate, when they first go out, they're selling their own personal service. And that's where it all kicked off. And then, so there's obviously a big way between that and doing and being, you know, because what do you guys, you're, you're probably the largest or the fastest growing mining contractor in Australia. Is that right? Uh, for the underground coal sector, mate, there are bigger contractors than us. Mm. But the, the rate of expansion that we're getting at the moment, mate, we're matching those companies at the moment. Well, why we are you guys growing so fast? Ones. I guess some of it is the right place at the right time. That said, though, you need to put yourself into that position. It was really about finding that niche. So for me, it was 
We were doing a summer work there for a few years and it sort of comes back to that old saying of you're an overnight success 10 or 20 years in the making, if that makes sense. Mm. So we're doing a summer work. We're doing really good electrical work. Everybody recognised that. But the downside of that was was that the actual mining firms themselves typically never actually award contracts just for the electrical work itself because it's only a smaller slice of the pie. So I thought, okay, what do we need to do to actually crack the big time? So what we did was took a step away from the electrical work and put myself back underground just working as an operator, mm. to working as a mechanical supervisor and actually learning another part of the business to actually go and take on those full contracts. Yeah, right. And so from that, so you started off with your niche, you recognized that there wasn't, that demand wasn't quite there. So you went out and expanded to a bigger thing and then you started growing. But then beyond the niche as well, I mean, there are plenty of people who have the niche, but there's very, very few who succeed. And like, why do you credit, like if there were a couple of things that you had to point out as the reasons why you guys were successful and others maybe haven't been so successful. Because I mean, you're you're winning. And I know from our discussions outside of this call is that you you win a lot of tenders, which are the, some of the big boys don't. Why do you feel that you guys might be winning a lot of those? Like, what is it about what you do, which is better and has allowed your business to grow faster and to outpace most of the big boys? Probably the key part there is 95% of our work is labour. So people are our business and it comes down to the quality of the people that you can attract into the business. And when you look at the bigger mining companies, typically they treat their guys as just another number. Mm. Uh, within our business, we try and walk the talk, so to speak, mate, every day and people are our business. You know, we feel like Nortec itself is a big family. You probably see a little bit of that, mate, with the stuff that we work with you with the JCF program. We try and push people forward and introduce them into the JCF program. We just try to give people opportunities, mate, which may not be there with the bigger companies and support that growth. Because mm. you have an enormous number of guys wanting like slapping their resumes down on your desk. I mean, even we've coached guys who've then said, oh, can you hook us up with Nordak? Can you introduce us or something like that? So why do you feel that you get so many? Like, what is it about what you're doing there which attracts so many people to, to actually want to come and work with you? Because I think that that's something fucking fascinating about that. I interviewed another bunch of guys who run a run a company called Sales Sniper. And so they're in like top 30 in the world for growth in terms of the rate of growth. I think it's like the, one of the top 30 fastest growing mm-hmm. companies. They're not quite sure, but they've just put it in for, I think it was Forbes was assessing that or, or something like that. And so they're very fast and they've got a very very similar mentality in that it's like the quality of people that you actually attract and it's also a mentality as well in the way that you actually grow and develop those people as well so what is it you think that has led you guys to be so successful in the way that people want to come and want to actually work for you as well i think one other key aspect of that is during that growth is while you're trying to balance the relationships that you have with the corporates within the mining businesses while you try and balance those relationships that you have with the managers on site, but still having that presence underground as to be able to actually be the face of the company and work with those guys. Mm. I'm still actively involved, mate, to this day, even though we've had that growth of being underground with the guys, not on a daily basis, but it's quite often you'll still see myself underground uh, once or twice a week down there with the boys on the ground floor, actually listening to what they have to say listening to these concerns, mate, like at the moment, even though we're remote, I still do a weekly call out to all of my coal clearance team and I, I ring up the guys and make sure that Nortec's doing everything that they need. I just do a bit of a sanity check, mate, and we ask those pretty simple questions of like, is there anything the administration staff aren't doing for you right now? They still have that direct line of contact back to the two um, managers in the business directly. Mm. And that goes a long way, mate. It really does. The culture underground is very tight. You'll often hear about guys who work in the underground industry. It's not easy, mate, working away from your family. It's not easy working underground 12 hours a day. The conditions are quite hard. The work is quite heavy. You don't have the comforts that a lot of the guys have on the surface. So after a while, some of those guys, they venture out into what they would call the real world. They're going get a, a normal operator's job in town. And then it's always the same story, mate. Four to six months later, they come back in the industry because they miss that mentality. And that mentality is, yeah, that closest, mate, that mentality is then reflected back through our management structure and how we keep in contact with everybody. Well, one of the things that I see that a lot of businesses screw up royally, and we coach like a number of businesses on this, is 
how people don't just work for a paycheck. And it's really funny that some guys still have an, have an attitude that's like, oh, if you pay more, you'll get the right people. It's as simple as that. There's so much more in it and around the culture, which I think that every single business, because I mean, like I, I keep seeing this, the more guys who I interview and I talk about with a mentality towards it, I see it's the same things. Like every single person who runs a successful business in terms of rapid, rapid growth, Every single time it's culture, 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 culture. It's really, really quite incredible. And then one of the things that I see is that from that as well is you need to have really solid leaders at the top. Now, you've obviously got you and Sam, Sam Perkins, who's the, the co-owner of, of Nortech. You guys are pretty strong leaders. And so within you, there's another thing I'd love to touch on, love to look down is you do a lot of cool shit. Like you're jack shredded, you're managing the mine and without blowing too much smoke up your ass, you can enjoy the tickle for a bit, but jack shredded, you know, arm wrestling, all that sort of stuff. I'd love to touch on how do you fit this all in and why do you fit so many different things in? It all comes down to your teammate and who you've got around you. Mm. And regardless of how good you think you are, I've always held this one belief that when you look at most entrepreneurs as they go forward and they grow their business, most entrepreneurs go and start a business because they're, super, they're typically good at a very specific skill set, whether that be their trade, whether you be a fiberglass or in tan and you're known for building hot rods, you know what I mean? That does not make you a successful business person. Mm. And that's just on a small scale itself. While you are your biggest asset, you are also your biggest restriction. So what you need to do is you need to have a sit down and have a real honest, hard look at yourself. And sometimes that's not easy and actually identify what you're not strong in and realise that the reasons why you're not strong in that area, you might not be strong in that area because you haven't been exposed to it before, or you may not be strong in that area because you're not interested in that. Some people inherently attracted to things compared to other objects, for example. What are your what areas of strength? Need? I'm very detail-orientated and process-driven. Mm. So for myself in the business at the moment, I handle the commercial and the um, administration management. And then Sam, he is the engagement man, mate. He has a knack of connecting people on sites and actually connecting with the broader workforce that I'll never have. And I know that. And that was one of the key reasons why myself and Sam first came together. I realised I had that deficiency and that's the reason why he came into the business. And we've developed that skill set with Sam now over the last four to five years and it's really, really starting to pay forward for us. It really is. I think that's another key thing too, is having a really good partner or two IC, whatever. And I mean, we, I, have, I have my two IC, Sandra, uh, but you've got your co-owner, Sam. How did you find Sam and how did you make that perfect match? How did I meet Sam? Yeah. It's Tell us the full story. story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the full story. What I'll do is just going to turn the heater off for a sec, mate, because I'm starting to cook here in Melbourne. But I was, um, I was doing a, a surface contract supervisor coordinator role at a, at a mine called Kestrel up in Queensland. And um, I was running Nortec at that stage. I was probably about 25, 26. And Sam shows up on site. He was a school-based apprentice and he was doing one or two days a week for me. And he got landed in my division. And that's how we first met. And that's, that's literally how it kicked off, mate. Mm. And we worked together for probably that first week. And the next week we worked together. We're down to the PCYC gym and Sam walks in and Sam's full of beans, mate. He's like, oh, you like lifting weights too, mate. I said, yeah, I'm straight, I like lifting weights, mate. And that's how it kicked off. We had a love affair for fitness the whole time. That's how one thing that's really kept us together. How long have you been lifting? For myself, I'd only pretty much started then. So I've probably been lifting now since I was about 25. Yeah, gotcha. What sort of a role does that play in what you're doing and your vision for your life? It just ties everything together, mate. One part is it's, it allows you to actually have that commitment to yourself and outside of everything else that's happening in work, whether you're trying to get cars transported to Europe or whether you're trying to get a tender out, which is due in three or four days' time, having that time where you're committed, you actually take a step back and you actually have that time on your own away from everybody else. It allows you to actually clear your head and really have a bit of a think about where you're heading. What do you mean um, by where you're heading? Uh, just, I guess... For lack of better terms, there's a saying out there, sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees, mate, because you get so involved in something, you're, you're really mixed up in it. You're working on something every single day heavily. For me, when I go to the gym, mate, it's about turning off the digital, just about focusing on myself and allows me to reflect about what I want to do. Mm. It really allows me to actually focus on that aspect. And where does arm wrestling come in? I've just always liked arm wrestling. So I guess like all arm wrestlers that you meet, 
you get to the stage where you can't get an arm wrestle out of your mates anymore. Mm. And then when you can't get an arm wrestle of your mates, you've got like a small social circle and you can't get an arm wrestle in your small social circle because you become known so you start looking out wider into the community and you start doing some research and you actually realise there are actually established arm wrestling clubs all the way up through Australia. We're down to the first arm wrestling club and, my God, there's some strong guys down there couldn't beat anybody. Well, what is it about arm wrestling for you? I do have a competitive nature, mate. So for me, it's about just focusing on myself as well. It's something that I know that I can do long-term. It's something which I can um, use as a focus on my health and my fitness. It really is just a cornerstone, mate, that I can keep going back to outside of just having a love for the gym generally and being a gym junkie. Being able to connect with those other people that have that similar interest, it is really nice. I remember when we had our first chat back, Jesus, three and a half years ago now, it was November, December, I think it was, of 2018, would I be right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. about that. That was that was a while ago. I remember thinking, "Is like fuck, this bloke does arm wrestling, wants to go pro." It was you're look, looking to take out the national titles back then? I remember that it was uh, it was a really unusual thing. So I didn't even know that that arm wrestling was something. But the more that I looked into it, I learned this this one thing: it's a very masculine sport, like super super masculine. Because there's nothing; it's just you versus the other bloke. That's it, mono e mono. There's no bullshit. There's no you can't cheat, you can't duck, you can't hide right on there i know this is a bit of a weird and a bit of a strange question but how much of a role do you feel that mindset has in sharpening and maintaining your mindset in work and in maintaining a sense of being totally transparent totally open and totally committed to yourself all the time i guess with the art wrestling itself mate, the, the thing that really does make me gravitate towards it is that you can talk it up as much as you want but when it comes time to compete the bullshit stops, mate. It's just you and the other guy on the table. And you can't hide from anything there because you typically have two guys which are around the same sort of body size because they do have weight divisions. So you inherently are typically the same sort of strength. Mm. And what it comes down to is how much time and commitment that you've actually put into that directly relates to how competitive you are on that day. So what it does is it stops you from hiding and making excuses. So that's where the transparency comes from, I guess. Mm. Does that filter for you? Did that filter into other areas of your life as well? I believe it was always there, mate. I really do. Mm. I guess that's the reason why I didn't like that sport to start with, you know. No matter how much ego you've got, the ego isn't going to get you across the line. It all comes down to the workload and how much commitment you put into it. True that. Well, the one thing I find very admirable mm. about you, and I sometimes reflect on when I'm being a bit of an egotistical prick, which I do have a tendency to do every now and then, I do look at you and I, and I say, it's like, fuck, because you're pretty chilled out. You're pretty cruisy. I mean, I haven't met too many blokes who've had a business which is turning on 20, 25 million going on much more than 25 million and as chilled out and as relaxed as what you are. What do you do to keep that ego in check? It's like anything in life, mate. I think some of it has to do with the people that you surround yourself with. Like uh, anybody that goes and achieves anything in life, regardless of what it is, the ego is it's a big thing, mate. For me, ego is the biggest killer of talent out there. Why do you really say that? Mm, interesting question. I never actually thought about it that way. Why is ego the biggest killer of talent? I believe that there's the, you could put it plainly that, hey, you've stuck me there. <laughs> I nearly had it. There is that saying that hard work will always outwork natural ability. So while that ego is there and while you fuel that ego, you lose sight of the goal, mate. You don't actually put the work in that you need to put in. Mm. That, for me, is a really big thing. and It comes down to the people that you surround yourself with and if your ego does start getting the better of you, a really important factor is having people around you that actually have the courage to say, well, hang on, Marcus, you're being a bit of a dick. How about you just pull your head in and actually have the respect for those people as well to go, okay, that's a bit of a check for me, you know what I mean? Mm. And that's not, a, that's not an easy thing to listen to the first few times, you know, because the ego starts sticking its head up and it starts saying, oh, F this guy, F that guy, so to speak. Well, you need to step back and say, well, hang on a minute, where's this coming from? This person has generally got my best interests at heart and that's the reason why they're raising this concern and I need to actually respect that friendship to start with and actually support that. Who do I've you have those times, mate. Sam, definitely. Megan as well. And there's a number of, number of other people as well. I've got a really good friend up in Rockhampton, Peter Baker. Um, he's always been there by my side for the last probably 15 years and uh, we've spoken about Pete extensively as well. Mm. Um, people like that, mate, having those people in your corner who aren't afraid to 
tell you what you may not want to hear, especially when it's true. You, you've dealt with obviously a lot. I mean, you're in mining, right? And mining is notorious for having a lot of guys who are difficult to deal with because let's be honest, not a whole heap of people are super passionate about waking up and playing in dirt all day. And a lot of the time it is a money factor which drives them in there, which obviously has influence on people's happiness and, and all that sort of stuff. How do you manage the ego of blokes who in your crew and in your team? Because we all know that when you have one person who's bad within your team, it can spread. It's like cancer, right? How do you manage that within your boys and how do you manage it within your crew so that you, if you have someone with ego, you can actually help them to, because the ego doesn't serve them. How do you help them to dissipate their ego? Yeah, I've never actually really thought about that, James. That one's got me stumped, mate, to be honest. Cool. We'll probably have a few more if I'm doing my job that'll have you stumped. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really super interesting because if we look at this, whenever we have, we, if you have one prick in a crew, it just completely ruins the whole thing. Productivity goes down, engagement goes down, everything goes down. And the one thing like I really admire, because we obviously we work with a lot of your guys and every time we see it, they're just really fucking good blokes. Every single time we coach someone from Nortec, they're just a genuinely nice guy. And I was looking at it and I was trying to in, in understand what is it because this is what I do, right? This is how I think because it's like, okay, success leaves clues. I see right here that there's a trend of guys from Nortec who are really genuinely good blokes. They're caring, they're kind, they're compassionate, they're hardworking, they have a great ethos. And I was thinking there's got to be a couple of places. Either you guys have this wonderful system of managing that and actually constantly working in with the boys, or there's some sort of leadership thing. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking at it now from it, there's definitely like a leadership area because, the, you know, the old expression, the fish rots from the head. We had, uh, I, went, I went to a school called the King School in Parramatta, and it's a pretty prestigious all boys boarding school. And I was living there. And there was a massive culture of bullying, right? Which I was both a part of and I was a, Victor, I hate the word victim, but I was mm -hmm. I was also received a little bit. I gave and I received, right? Fair enough, I received some too because Jesus, did I give a lot, all right? Um, but with that, I looked at that and I was going through an understanding, why is it that we had a culture of bullying at this school? Why did we have a culture of ego and bullshit and bravo and bravado and machismo? And I looked at it and you go through it and go through the ranks, like where did it start? And I looked at some of the teachers they engaged in those acts with us, like some of the teachers were actually bully the boys. And went all the way up to the headmaster and it was about 50% of the guys loved the headmaster, 50% of them thought he was a twat, right? Absolute, absolute prick. And I looked at the way that he led and it was, he led with like almost an iron fist. He wasn't very present. He didn't really care. He didn't take an active role in what the boys were doing. He didn't really give a shit about us. He was more concerned with writing books for a lot of the time, in my opinion. Some people from the school disagree with that. But I was looking at, at the way that he led and it was really poor and it was with bullying. And I compare that to the way that you lead with no ego, total absence of ego and just working towards the common goal of making sure that Nortec is the best, the highest quality underground contractor within Australia, within your niche. And it's totally chalk and cheese, right? And there's one thing I noticed was really, really fucking impressive about the way that you guys do things. And I think that's something that we want, we're actively every day in JCF trying to emulate to make better and better and better within our guys. Because when you have this team of guys who are working in together, they're fucking unstoppable, right? Yeah, I think you nailed it there. When you first started speaking, that I, I thought I actually had the answer for you, mate. So I was just trying to hold it in my head so I didn't lose it. Communication is the key. It does all tie together. So there's one thing to have an idea of, of how you want to lead your business. There's another idea of where you see your business being, but you can't just have that in your own mind. And the thing that you'll find, which is really specific to underground, is that you are very isolated when you're down there. So the underground statutory controllers, they're called deputies. Um, I've always thought they're called deputies for a reason, back from the old Wild West days. When you're underground, mate, they rule the roost. They are the law and order. So typically what happens underground gets dealt with underground. And you very rarely hear that come back up through the crews, through the senior management. So you've got this real opportunity there to get isolated very, very easily from your crews. So it's about having that vision of where you see your company being and actually walking the talk and being that person, like you said. You put your ego aside, mate, and you need to get out of your own way. I'm going to um, I'm going to take that right now because I took that from Michael with one of his responses that he did on the weekend for his breath camps. Mm. Michael, absolutely beautiful man. I really love the fact we got to meet. And that really resonated with me, mate. He said, you need to put your ego aside and you need to get out of your own way. 
So when you get yourself to that stage and you start walking in that line, the guys need to see that and the guys need to be actually subjected to that, so to speak. So that's where the communication really becomes key, mate. You need to be able to have that open communication with your guys mm. and you need to be able to be in a position where if you've got a crew and the crew isn't meshing, whether it's a six-man crew or it's a 30-man crew or a 200-man contract, that somebody has the, um, they feel like they've actually got the opportunity to come forth and actually tell you what they think you need to hear. And that, that is the key, mate. You then get that information and then you can actually, you can steer the ship, mate, where you need it to go. That's a pretty rare talent though, with finding someone who's like that. How did you get your deputies? We don't employ the deputies ourselves at the moment. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is actually having that communication with the actual crew members themselves. So gotcha. you'll have your own supervisors. But even saying that, you don't always get your recruitment stream right. Like your supervisor might not be the perfect supervisor. Mm. That supervisor might be the right thing. So what you need to do is actually have that communication stream there where your guys can actually have the courage to come and talk to you directly. And that's how you actually get to the bottom of it. Mm. And what did you do to make sure that you guys could feel comfortable enough to approach you and Sam? Um, You had some candid conversations with them, mate. Mm. You can actually go underground with the guys and have face-to-face conversations, one-on-one, and also conversations with your guys in group and be honest with them, share some of the things that you've actually experienced and Mm. possibly even share things with them that typically business owners and managers wouldn't because some people actually like to have that isolation away from their people. They don't like to get involved in the day-to-day stuff. That's some pretty shit leadership, though, if you're doing that. That's pretty normal in mining, mate. Mining is a very fairly toxic environment at times. Why do you think that is? Because we've got the two polar opposites, right? We've got, and you know, my family was in mining for a long time, and as a small, as a small family mine, so it wasn't anything big, and it seemed a lot closer. But you look, and I totally agree from the guys who also that I've coached. It's really common that it's toxic, but then there's Nortec, which is totally opposite. And every time we've got someone on the phone, they'll tell me for the first 10 minutes of the conversation, how good you are. I'm like, mate, shut the fuck up. I want to talk about you, not Marcus. But they'll be literally saying about how good it is to work for Nortec. So why do you feel that it's so difficult or why do you feel so many people in mining? And it's actually, in my opinion, it's not just mining. I think this is just true in a lot of businesses in general. I mean, we talk with all of our guys, like in the whole JCF crew, all of all the mentors, all our sales guys, all of our guys who work in admin, the whole lot. Everyone says, I've never worked in a company where people actually were actually so cared about. I've never worked in, I mean, even my IT guy said, wow, you're actually really hands-on. Like you actually spend time with me. You're actually here. This is really amazing. Like, wow. What the, and I haven't even spent that much time with him in my opinion. I've spent a few hours. So why do you feel that that's so rare going around in, in general in business? Can I speak for other business? Because most of my stuff's been in mining, but what I've noticed like in the last 20 years is you have a, um, a telepool of people that you could resource from. Mm. Just say mining there is in coal, underground, 10,000 people. Let's just give it a number. Mm. And different people go and do different roles for different reasons, James. One of the big draw factors in mining is the equal time on and off rosters. Mm. What you will find, though, is that a lot of the management roles, mate, they are, they're not equal time. They are a five-to-day, five-to-six-day-a-week grind. Mm. And that in itself actually restricts the um, talent pool that you can resource from. Right. Uh, time and time again, when I'm underground, I have worked with people that have been in management before who don't have that ego, who are highly capable, but they just do not work in those management roles because they don't want to be in those five- to six-day roles. And because of that, the people that they attract to those management roles is often quite restrictive. Instead of now drawing from a resource pool of 10,000 people, they might be drawing from a resource pool of like 500 people. Seems so quite short sighted. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Definitely. Mm. Mm. How do you counter that? How do I counter that? Yeah. Um, I don't think we're really subjected to that that much because within our own business, like our management structure is quite lean. Mm. So a lot of our supervision do work those attractive rosters. So that in itself allows us to actually then pick the best people from our crews. Mm. But the other side of it is we're still working within those minds, mate, that actually have that culture. And that's the hard part. Mm. And while saying that's the hard part, though, while you're doing something different and you're standing out, you're actually attracting those other people into your company. It does give you an edge. Well, when they see how your company runs. Yeah, definitely. So what what I'm talking about there is talking about the wider workforce where you say people are banging those resumes on your desk. 
How many resumes do you get on your desk roughly per month? We were to put an ad out, mate, for operators at the moment, just saying Illawarra, we would probably get upwards of two or three hundred applicants. Fuck me. How many how many roles? Days. How many how many jobs would that be advertising for? Probably advertising for a couple of dozen roles at a time. So you're getting pretty much ten times as many applicants as what there are jobs. Mm. Is that the same for the whole mining industry? Or is that different for you guys? That's increased over time for us, mate. It really has. Mm. I remember when we first started out, but we didn't have a name. We would yeah. put an ad out for a dozen guys and we would probably get 40 resumes. And out of those 40 resumes, only 10 of those guys had, had the right skill set. Yeah, right. That's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess the next thing that comes along as well, like whenever we look into leadership and we look at how, how you're leading, because one thing that I'm definitely taking away from this at the moment, for you, the key to Nortec's success has been number one, leadership, which is actually actively involved and gives a shit. Number mm-hmm. two is actually creating that culture where you can actually communicate and the guys are actually able, the guys feel cared for, they feel valued, oh. and then also they understand that they can talk with you. And then number three, having a lean management structure. But the one thing I'd love to touch on is your role of being a man and, and and a high performance man at that, but also the way that your masculinity plays a role in this, what have you done to make sure, and in my, my opinion too, a little bit more context for this, like when I view someone like you, you're jacked and shredded, so you look after yourself, you have respect for yourself there. You have a relate relationship, you maintain that. Megan, she's an absolute legend. There are all these areas of your life where you take rigorous care of yourself. How much of a role do you think that, that you looking after your health, you're looking after your well-being and setting example, you're not the regular fat business owner. Like if we look at most business owners, they're pretty overweight these days. Stress is through the roof. They're working all these hours every single week. They're not putting any time into their body. They're eating like shit because they're stressed. They're drinking, doing drugs, all this sort of stuff. Why is it that you've chosen to not go down that path? And how much of a role do you feel that that plays in you being where you are? Why have I done that? I just don't want it to end. I'm 41 now, mate. I don't feel old at all, you know. Mm. Like I am, in my opinion, I am in my prime. And I want that to continue now for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I was having a conversation with my father probably a few weeks ago now. We talked about Skelter and where I needed to take it and take that into Europe and actually test that vehicle. And I talked about the changes that I've made with myself and my health that I still wanted to be able to drive competitively and actually test those vehicles well into my 80s. And he sort of like raised his eyebrow. He goes, hey, but he goes, that's another fucking 40 years. I'm like, yeah, that is another 40 years. Can we introduce some context as well here? Because a lot of people would be like me a couple of years ago. What's the Skelter and what's your dream with the Skelters? Initially, they were a low-volume complied tarmac rally vehicle that was built in Australia. So it was built by a gentleman by the name of Ray Vandersee. So Ray Vandersee is one of the original owners of the Vanderfield Group, who is a very major player all through Queensland and Northern Territory, through Hino and John Deere truck and tractor distributions. And what Ray did was he went away and he built and designed a tarmac rally vehicle. He had a, a dream to win Target Tasmania. So he went and built these vehicles and competed in these vehicles competitively. He did manage to come second outright in Target. And during the course of that, they changed the regulations on the um, compliance on those vehicles and pretty much pushed him out of competition. So what I managed to do up that is I've actually secured the rights to build and, and sell those vehicles. So we're actually in the final stages at the moment of getting the last of that manufacturing equipment over to Belgium to my other business partner. His name is Tom Van Dyke. It was in Antwerpen, which is in, um, in Belgium. And the idea there is to actually set up shop in Belgium. The sale to all that, mate, is we need to break the Nürburgring record. We need to make that the fastest production car in the world. Uh, the Nürburgring, it's um, 20.2 kilometres in the Eiffel Mountains, which is in the southwest of Germany. Anybody that knows anything about cars will be thinking, oh, I know what he's talking about. It's uh, got 255 deviations, and that is the hollow testing ground that every car manufacturer in the world goes to, to have the bragging rights to say we are the fastest production car in the world. And so, so you're going to get simple, that. Look, that's all we need to do, mate. I just need to put my bum in the seat. I just need to build the car and drive it and uh, break that record and then we'll sell the vehicles. It's really quite basic. Piece Simple. Of piece of piss. Easy, huh? Just going to break the world record. <laughs> but then we've got this thing called COVID going on at the moment, which is a bit of a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's just a little is. bit. Yeah, I <laughs> so think a couple of things I'd love to touch on as well in, with the skeletons because these things are fucking insane. Like when we, we were talking, it was about three, four months ago now, if I remember correctly, maybe six months, and you were there and you were – 
hollowing out your steering wheel in the Skelter, I think. Is that does that sound about right? You were taking yeah, it was a steering rack. It was a steering, steering rack. Yeah. There you go. And you were hollowing <laughs> it out. So the whole thing as well, for everyone who hasn't seen a skelter before, like I wish I was as big as Joe Rogan. I could say, Jamie, pull this up, please. But I can't. But so with this, the skelters are real, it's a really light but really powerful <clears throat> car, right? And you've been going through and every single part of the, the car that has excess weight, you're just getting rid of it. So you're hollowing out the steering rack. It doesn't have doors. It doesn't have anything at all because it is just there to be the lightest, fastest possible thing ever. Is that right? Yeah, the car, car that we have sitting in Belgium at the moment, mate, it is 820 kilos full of fuel with me sitting in the car and it's 620 horsepower. How much really is a normal car? Normal car is typically about 1,500 kilos. It's about 300 horsepower. Right, and that's without without a fuel tank and without a fuel, yeah, full, full tank and without sitting on the, Exactly, mate, yeah. So you're about a ton lighter. Yeah, about a ton lighter. So you've got the same power to weight as a 1,000cc road bike with a with a rider sitting on there. It's quite slick. Yeah, gotcha. How fast does it go? Top speed at the moment is 270. That's just the gearing, mate. That's gotcha. just the way it's set up. And so to break the world record, are you going to change that or is that going to stay, stay as it is? The top speed will still stay the same. It's all about getting the weight down a little bit more, mate, because the cars, when they were originally made in Australia, they were... They were about 700 kilos and they were about 320 horsepower. So the vehicle over there at the moment has got twice as much power. Yeah, gotcha. So why so is, like, why do you want to do this? Because it's pretty fucking fast. And <laughs> Anybody that's ever driven really fast, mate, would know that answer. It's like a heightened sense of things. It's like time slows down. Oh, I like, like jumping like out of a plane, in, mate. It is dialed in, mate. It really is. It is like jumping out of the plane. I've done it a few times now as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not, man, I fucking love that feeling. I miss yeah, it. I haven't, I haven't jumped now in like a month. It's like yeah. that feeling of knowing that you can die. There's something really beautiful about knowing you can die when you're doing something mm-hmm. that makes you feel incredibly alive. And I think anyone who's done it would know what I mean. But like when you're jumping out and you know very well that the ground is coming very, very fast, like at 200 k's an hour, and you can't fuck up pulling that chute, there's something really that makes you totally present in that moment. You can't think about anything else, right? Yes. I, I remember it really clearly, mate. Like I went and raced Targa with Ray. I met one of Ray's friends. His name was Guy. So Guy was actually driving a Skelter of a street sprint down in Toowoomba, I think it was. And I had a GT2 Porsche at that stage, which is typically not what you would drive at a street sprint. And drove quite well on that day. And Guy came actually invited me to come and drive the Skelter. When I drove the Skelter, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. You know, I've been looking at getting the Tarmac Rally for quite some time. And I hadn't raced a Targa before. I'd only ever done street sprints. So I took a couple of days to get into the groove of the vehicle. And I think it was the third day. I remember coming around what was called a, like a six or seven right in rally terms. And I was in third gear pushing quite hard, probably pulling, mate, probably 160, 170 k's an hour, and the corner's getting deeper and deeper, and I'm pushing accelerator down harder and harder. And it was at that moment, it was like time itself had actually slowed down. I could actually feel every piece of rubber, every piece of tarmac coming off the actual tyre, slapping the underguard of the body, and it was just dialed in. I thought, yeah, this is the business. This is really what I'm looking for, you know, that adrenaline was just so intense. But at the same time, I was the one that was in control. I probably would have had a different feeling if I was sitting in the navigator seat. <laughs> yeah, it's true, hey. It's like that that moment yeah. where if you kill yourself, it's cool. But if someone kills you, no, nah, no bueno. Yeah, and it was good, mate. Like that was our first ever event. We actually managed to win that class at Targa. So there was 320 cars at that event. Mm. Uh, we won the two-wheel drive class, which was, for me, that was quite that was quite an achievement. I remember sitting there on the second last stage and I got to talk to a couple of gentlemen there that were driving an Evo 4 or 5 at that stage mm. and this was their ninth target. Mm. And for those nine years, they'd been trying to crack the top ten and we were sitting in eighth spot at that that stage outright against all the four-wheel drives. And target's quite wet, mate, so driving a two-wheel drive is quite slippery. And they just said to me, they said, we're not even going to try and go for a position. They said, we've been trying now for the last nine years to get in the top ten. So it is quite a competitive sport, but it was really good. Mm. Well, it hasn't all been like rainbows and butterflies for you because you buggered yourself up big time. How many years ago was that now that you had your crash? Yeah, it was 2012, mate. We had another event after that. We went to Perth. We raced Targa West and myself and Jared. We got the notes wrong, mate. We called a, 
uh, seven right tightens to opens, but it just tightened again, mate. We actually collected a gum tree at probably about 160 k's an hour. That put me out of action for about two years. It would have stung. Yeah, a little bit, mate. So I learned a lot about myself being in a wheelchair for that time. I crushed both my feet and did a bit of other damage on the inside. I bruised a few things and that was a bit of soul searching. So, yeah, so you're, in a, you're in a wheelchair for how long? On and off over two years. Yeah, through right. Through three surgeries, yeah. So yeah, so why were you in a wheelchair? Just because of both your feet? Yeah, pretty much. I just crushed the metal tarsals of both my feet, mate, extensively. Mm. Probably had about 100 fractures in my right foot. What effect did that yeah. have on you, like mentally? It didn't slow me down, mate. It really didn't. I remember coming back. I finally got home. I spent a couple of nights in a hospital over in Perth, mate. They finally got me home and you go and talk to the surgeon and he goes, has a bit of a chuckle. He goes, we typically only see like a double leg cast here every two or three years. You know, most people are stupid enough to break both legs. He said, mate, I haven't seen damage this extensive before. Metatarsals are quite tricky. There's a lot of bones there. He goes, I don't think you're ever going to walk properly again. I thought, oh, that's rubbish. That's not what I want to hear. We'll just park that. And I just got back into it, mate. I, um, I spent that time to build a, a fairly decent freestyle motocross facility in Rockhampton where I was living. Mm. Um, I built that for probably about 18 months, mate. I'd go out every day. I'd get on the loader, had an automatic old Toyota Sora, come up to the gate, over the gate, knock it open with the bumper bar, mate. I'd get down to the loader because we made it fuel it up once a week for me and I'd get out and I'd just drive the tractor all day, mate. I'd just build some jumps. Mm. That's what kept me mind moving. Why did you choose to do track. that? Because that's a difficult thing to do, right? When you think, oh, fuck, i got no feet and I can't walk and I, I'm confined to this bloody wheelchair. A lot of blokes in that situation lay down. And I don't blame them either. It's fucking difficult. Why did you choose to keep going? When you stop moving, you die, mate, put it simply. Mm. But it takes a fair bit of willpower, right, to do that and to push through. Yeah, I've never really thought about it like that, mate. It's just what you do. I mean, you put your mind to something and you just go and chase it. Where do you think you got that mentality from? Same again, mate. Like I said, from the old man, I watched him run his, I watched him run that company made in towns when I was a young bloke and that was just anything was possible. Another potentially weird question, right? A lot of guys don't have the same father figure that you did. Like you, you know, we've always talked about how awesome your parents are and like wonderful role models. A lot of blokes don't have that in their life. We don't have that. There's, there's a, we, we talked about this too, is there's a massive deficiency in real men going around. There's a massive, massive deficiency. And I'm not saying that to be antagonistic or inflammatory about anyone, but it's true. A lot of us don't have awesome dads. I'm very, very fortunate to have my dad. He's an absolute legend, but there's a lot of guys without them. How do you think if you're not shown that from a young age that you can generate this mentality of do or die success that you have? Yeah, that'd be a guess for me, mate, because like I said to you when we spoke last week, it'd be nice to be able to to play the victim and say, oh, I couldn't do this because of this and I couldn't do that because of that family-related mm. wise. But it's always been there, mate. That, that that cornerstone has always been there for me. Mm. So for me, it was just it was just normal. It's just Nothing what you do. Possible. It's just what you do, mate. Do you, sir, do you have many guys around you who have that same mentality? I don't see it very often. Mm. Yeah, it's a real shame because I see that that mentality that because that's how I was brought up as well. I used to think mindset was bullshit. It's pretty funny now that considering I now coach on a lot of mindset, but I remember thinking that mindset's bullshit. Just fucking do it, right? That's what I used to say. Mindset's mindset's a waste of time. Don't worry about it. Just figure out what you want to do, then go do it. Simple as that. Done. And it makes logical sense, right? But there's a whole heap of other steps in there which are really, really super important. And one of the things I learned from you is that whenever we catch up, and it's been going, we've had a relationship now for however many years, but it's like whenever we catch up, you just do shit and you just get it done. And that was for me, one of the things that I've taken away and I've learned from you is that no matter how fucking tired you are, no matter how many hundred hour weeks you've worked, no matter what you put in, you've just still got to keep going and ticking over, ticking over, ticking over. Because in the end of the day, all the talk doesn't mean anything. It's just action, right? It's as simple as that, which is really quite a masculine trait, right? It's just the consistency, mate. You know what I mean? You need to be consistent. It sounds, it sounds, so, sounds like a cliche, you know what I mean? You need to be consistent. The consistency is a cornerstone to everything. It really is. It's about setting yourself a goal and then mapping out the steps that you're going to take to get there and then looking at the resources you need to actually get along the way and then actually putting that into process and just keep revisiting it and keep revisiting it. Probably one really important part about all that, though, is just not to lose sight of the fact that you do need to actually have a re readjust and a, and a reset every now and again. Mm. You see a lot of people in life, what they'll do is they get this idea. I think it comes from the, it stems from the fact that when you're in high school and you're in grade 10, you've got to go and choose these subjects that you're going to choose in grade 11 and 12, right? Mm. 
And why do you go and choose those subjects? It's based pretty much on what university you want to go to or what career you want to go and chase. And they're asking you at a very young age to set yourself for the next 15 or 20 years. You go and get this job, you stick your head down, you work your bum off, you pop your head up when you're 40 years old and you're like, man, this, is, this isn't where I want to be, you know. Yeah. But you work towards a dream which isn't real anymore. You've got to take a step back every few years and go, okay, this is where I am right now. What comes next? And not be scared to not give up on things but put some things aside because they don't serve you anymore. Mm. It's okay to change your mind. Mm. It's okay to change your mind on the daily if you want to, but mm. still be consistent in where you're heading though. Mm. So the application's still there. How do you map out where you want to go? How do you think about that? For me at the moment, mate, I'm going to seem quite boring. It is all about skeleton. Mm. Like Nortec is a really big part of my life. But at the moment, mate, it is all tied into actually getting the vehicle together and actually getting back to Europe. But how did you decide that? How did you say this is what I'm going to do and plant that? It's because it's what I enjoy doing. I'm doing something that I actually enjoy, you know. It's something that I'm actually passionate about. It's not about driving the car and actually breaking a record because they do that all the time. Records do get broken all the time. The Nürburgring record falls every now and again. It fell again recently, mate. It fell probably about three or four months ago. The GT2 RS took that record back again. But it's about setting yourself a goal that is in line with what you can achieve to an outer point of your limits. So it's not just about driving the car fast because a lot of people can steer a car fairly, fairly well. It's actually about building the car and then driving the car, which nobody's ever done before. Mm. So it's tying those two things together. So for me, if I can achieve that, I've literally pushed myself to the limit. And the beautiful part about that is, and we've talked about it before, reaching your summit. There's no good reaching the summit, mate, and being there on your own. Mm. It's about taking as many people along for the ride as you can. And not everybody's going to make it. Not everybody's going to want to come along for the ride. Mm. And not everybody's going to want to come along for the complete ride. But it's about providing the opportunities to those people around you to be involved in that. And from that, that's where you get that personal growth. Mm. You've always been, since I've known, you've always been pretty clear on what you want to do and where you want to go. Because the skeleton's been set. We've been talking about that for a long time, like actually since you started. So why was it in the first place that you shot me a message and wanted to get coached by me? I watched you for a while, mate, to be honest. Like I probably watched you on social platform for about 18 months. Mm. And I wanted to work with you because I felt like you were the real deal. Like you actually walked the talk as well and it continues to this day. It's not about pushing the product down anybody's throat. It's about providing real value to people. And a lot of that comes from the free content that gets provided on the platforms as well. Mm. It was like anything. Like I talk about, you look at what your, your weaknesses are. Mate, I was lifting weights like a lot of people. I was going to the gym like a lot of people. I was. I reached out to a couple of nutritionists like a few people do and I wasn't getting the result I wanted. I was like, well, hang on a minute. Here's a bloke that's an expert in that field. It seems like they're the real deal, so let's get this guy on board. So that was really strategic, you know, like I've got yourself in the corner there with my strength and conditioning and, and a mentor as well. Like most of the stuff that we talk about, mate, isn't even lifting related anymore. Yeah. It was identifying that my engagement with people on to actually go and chase work wasn't strong and it wasn't something I was interested in. So that's where Sam came on board. And for me and Sam, it was a matter of, of being honest and saying, this is what's in it for you. This is what's in it for me. This is what we need to do together, and off we went. Mm. And it continues to this day, mate. Like I've been with Megan now for the last five years, probably one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. Mm. And look at us now, mate. We're both killing it. You see the, the photos that go up of Megan and her progress pics. She's getting ready for a competition coming in October as well. Like she's been a really, really good, solid block there for me, mate, to lean on. She is an anchor. Mm. But in every man, every great man, there's an even greater woman, huh? Yeah, definitely. Mm. What support does she give you? Like for you, like what is it? Because we, we all have different things, right? With women, And I believe that women have this most amazing talent of being the, the bedrock behind the men. Now, I'm a little bit traditional. Some people might hate this, but I view in a lot of situations that in, in a large amount of time, the women's strongest role is stopping us from doing dumb shit and from keeping us on the track and actually making men go out and hunt and kill and all that while they make sure that our hearts are in the right place, our heads in the right place and keeping us channeled. What do you feel? And that's what Soph totally does for me. I conf- can confidently say I'd be royally fucked without Soph. Like, I don't know what I'd be doing. I don't oh, know. Mate, I'll be 
I'd be flat out feeding myself if it wasn't for Megan, to be honest. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I don't <laughs> eat when Sof's not around. I forget. It's literally it. It's quite. It's quite humorous, huh? Yeah. What What does What support does Megan do for you? And like, what What are the most important roles about what she does in your life? It's just the support is real, mate. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not false. Like, I can't imagine most guys going and saying to their partner, I'm going to spend the next five years and I'm going to probably have to invest five to $10 million in, in doing it in an endeavor. And Megan's like, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you need to go and do. It's just genuine, mate. It really is. Mm. And in all of that, like everybody, mate, probably not the easiest guy to live with at times. Work does get really, really busy. Like, I'm getting ready right now. Before we had our meeting this morning, I'm out the back packing everything up as I'm getting ready to, to leave Victoria lockdown. Hopefully our COVID restrictions lift on Wednesday midnight. Mm. If they do, I'm going to drive straight into New South Wales COVID restrictions and they're starting to go off the, off the Richter at the moment. Yeah. I might be there for two or three months, mate, before I come home again. And when I'm gone, mate, she's going to be here and she's going to take care of everything for me. She's going to take care of me dog for me. Bully's going to be taken care of. She's going to keep the home fires burning, mate. And when I come home, everything's still going to be perfect. It really is. Where do you think you'd be without her? Me? Mm. It's a pretty open-ended question. <laughs> don't you I wonder? I pretty, often wonder. I don't, I, don't think I, think I, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you right now, mate. No, it's it's interesting. It's a funny one because I often think about that. I'd be like, what dumb shit would I be doing? Because there's something very, very calming about a good woman too, isn't there? Mm-hmm. That it just totally mm-hmm. keeps us on track. And it's like this wonderful two-way relationship where the masculine and the feminine are totally different and they're complete opposites. But when you mix them together, there's something very, very powerful about that, right? Yeah, I guess for me, it's when you're a person that has a really clear idea of where you're heading mm-hmm. and you're trying to achieve some things which may seem probably a little bit how would I say, unachievable to some people. Some people wouldn't even imagine that those things are possible. You need to back yourself and you need to have a very clear idea that, yes, this is what I'm going to go and do. Mm. But at the same time, that can be a double-edged sword, you know. Sometimes you can make a decision and say, this is what I'm going to go and do, mm. and, mate, that's not the right decision. Yeah. That's a bit of a dick move, really. That's yeah. going to get you in trouble. And Megan's doesn't jump down my throat straight away. She might come back a day later and say, oh, about this, you know, is that really what you should be doing or do you need a hand with this? And it makes me think about it. How do you balance all this? Because you've got the two two stepkids. Are you okay with just talking about that, yeah. by the way? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. Hunter and Scarlet. Yeah. Yeah, and so and and so with this, like you're you're in this in this stepdad role, and f- from everything that I've seen, like and and everything that we know is like you you love that role, like you cherish and all that. How was it for you coming in and looking after these kids in that role as the stepdad? It took time. It did. Mate, I was ready for it straight away. Like I come from, like I said, mate, a, a very strong family background. Family to me was was always really important. Obviously, been through a few other relationships in life before I got to Megan, mate. This isn't my first radio. Probably had the opportunity to start a family a few times for whatever reason that didn't work out. So it wasn't an alien idea to me. Mm. The, the hardest part was actually getting Megan to relinquish some of that control, you know, because she's trying to protect those babies. Because mm. when I come on the scene, mate, they were quite young. I remember. One of the very first memories of me trying to bond with the two children. So Hunter is a couple of years older than Scarlett. Mm. And it wasn't easy to start with, mate, you know. You're trying to go into this very stable family structure. They'd be living on their own for a couple of years by that stage. I living in the car. I had a nice little townhouse near the beach when I, when I came across Megan. So I seen this PWA for sale on a marketplace. I'm like, mm. oh, that was my first motorbike. This is it. We're going to get a motorbike. So I get this Pee 80, we take it home and, and Megan, for anybody that does know Megan, Megan's only four foot seven. She is probably the smallest real human I've ever come across in my life. And because of that, Hunter and Scarlet, they're not they're not tall monsters like myself. Like I'm nearly six foot three. Get this motorbike home. Hunter goes to sit on it. Can't even touch on one side. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do here, you know? So when Leonard drilled from next door and did some modifications, mate, and actually dropped the arse into that seat down, got the motorway going. Next part of the story, we go down the dog park. And Scarlett was that small at that stage. She was trying to run with her helmet and she couldn't even run, mate. She was falling over. She was only like probably four years old. So that was that was one of the first memories, mate. We just come back for our um, first probably family motorbike trip up at Menard Park in Queensland a couple of weeks ago because of COVID. So actually continued on with that with that right now so that's been a really good thing for us to share that mm. what do you see your your role as as the stepdad as a mentor 
one of the things which is really strong in the, the children's family structure. Outside of Megan is their, their father. He runs his own business as well. Mm. So they already have their own dad. So I'm not there to replace them, but I am there to actually just try and just share some of the knowledge that I have made. And that's small things like one of the things we did as a family six months ago is we pulled the mo- engine out of the mocap and back together. And that's Megan and the two kids hanging off, off the engine crane, pulling the engine out of the moat, mm. showing the kids how to change a tyre on the push bike, showing the kids how to change the battery in the car. Mm. Just actually sharing all those life skills for Hunter, which will make him a man mm. because it just doesn't exist anymore, mate. We're just a dying breed. What do you mean? Like what's your perception of that? Yeah, there's this term out there, the whole term about the, the toxic masculinity, mate. I don't buy into that. I just don't see that. In those traditional roles like they used to be you know like we are genetically the way we are because that is the way we are we are mm. big we're strong we're aggressive we sweat we smell i think a lot of people try and hide away from that i think that for me being a man is being able to do typically those things which is seen as historically masculine traits made about being out actually going change the tyre in the car, service the car, being able to go and use a welder, being able to change the engine in your motorbike, all those sort of things, mate, that actually make you self-sufficient. Mm. That's a really good point, self-sufficiency, because it seems like now with this, I, I don't know what the fuck it is. I don't know why people hate masculinity all of a sudden. Like it's literally the most stupid thing ever. All I see over social media, and I don't watch terribly much of it, but it always pops up everywhere in front of your face is people talking about toxic masculinity, men this, men that, all that sort of stuff. And it's like they're trying to beat down men and they're trying to beat them down in this submissive little reliant bitch. And that's what people seem to want. Well, some people seem to want. I don't think most people do. I mean, shit, I don't see meet many mates and and they want to be toxic masculine like all those weak guys. And I fucking hate that term too, by the way. Like to- toxic masculinity. All those traits of toxic masculinity they talk about, I'm putting in inverted commas for you guys listening on audio. Toxic masculinity is the biggest bullshit term because it's not masculinity, is it? Like, what about these these guys who, you know, are harassing chicks? What about these guys who are behaving in all sorts of weak, unsavory ways? What about that's masculine? None of it's masculine at all. I mean, for me, when I view a man, a man is someone who's strong, who's stoic, who's calm, who's loving, who's kind, but is afraid to be. And with kind, it's kind's duplicitous. Kind is that you're generous and you're warm, but at the same time, you won't put in, put up with any shit, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of just being the port of the storm for the family, mate. Somebody they can look to, you know, someone they can rely on, someone they can actually, um, they can trust. They know that's always going to be there to actually be that pillar of strength and do the things that they can't do. Like men are men and women are women. Women have their own traits and there's certain things that, that women do need men for, you know. In my view, anyway. Well, I see that more and more women are trying to adopt masculine traits. I mean, we look, there's all these pushes to have, for example, women in in the army, like pushing a quota of trying to have like equal amounts. I'm probably going to get fucking slammed for saying this, right? But we're forcing women (laughs) into these traditionally masculine roles. And it doesn't make sense, does it? All for the sake of a quota that we're forcing women into this. I don't understand. When did it become not okay for a woman to be that loving, caring mother who is totally and absolutely feminine as opposed to trying to take on all these masculine roles? Yeah, agreed, mate. I really do agree with that. It just it just blows me away. Like we try and chase the um, identity politics, I suppose some people would call it, mate. We're so caught up in everybody being equal that we actually lose sight of what makes us unique in the first place. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Why do men have to be the same as women? Uh, that one really fucking gets me. I mean, we have, you know, JCF, we have our, our general manager. So Sandra, she's my right-hand woman and she's amazing. She's totally feminine and she's the most feminine, awesome. And it's the best because if us blokes were all left to run around, we'd be like chickens with our heads cut off, but she keeps everything really, really calm in that strong feminine way. Like very, very feminine. She's amazing. She's, she's an absolute savage. I love having her on the team and it's absolutely wonderful. And it seems that societies, like a lot of people are trying to diminish this role as the woman and say that you're not good enough. I mean, even, even look with Soph. Soph runs our social media, does a lot of stuff, very similar to Megan's role in Nortech and what you guys do. And she helps out and she makes sure that I'm keeping my head on 
on and she's she's guiding me, but she doesn't have her own thing. And we hear a lot of people talk about how she needs to get a shop. She, she needs to go run her own business. She needs to do this. She needs to be going out and get, being a go-getter. doesn't make any fucking sense, does it? What's the point in two of us being a go-getter? Because then we're two of the same. We have all the same strengths and we have all the same weaknesses. Why not be complementary where one's strong, where one's weak and vice versa? All she needs to do, mate, is what she wants to do, to be honest. True that. Regardless of what that is. hundred percent. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing, and it and it, it never ceases to amaze me about how how this is going. But so, like for you, men, what makes a strong man? What what makes a really good strong man? A strong man is somebody that's that knows what they're worth, mate. You know what I mean? They're confident in themselves, and they're confident in a way that they don't need to fucking show it off. They don't need to cheer it down everybody's throat. They don't need to run around and say, I am the man. They can sit there in the background and they can they can be the quiet person. But when push comes to shove, they have the courage to stand up and say, Ring on a minute, that's not right. I'm not going to have you talk to my woman that way. You just need to sit down, mate. You need to go back to bed or get out of your way. You need to be able to actually be dangerous in a way as well because that's what men are designed to be. We're big. We're strong historically, mate. That's what we're made for. We're meant to go into battle. You need to know your worth. You need to know how strong you are. You need to be confident in that. You need to be happy that you don't need to show that off either. Uh, probably one of the biggest things is actually um, a strong man is somebody that actually supports everybody around them, that builds everybody else up around them. For me, I can genuinely say that I wish more success on all of my friends than what I achieve. That would really, really make me happy to be surrounded by everybody else who's really, really killing it. I'm That's really unique. Why is that? I'm just not interested in tearing other people's shit down, mate, because the simple fact is, is that if you try and make yourself better by tearing everybody else down, you're not the best version of yourself. If you build everybody else up around you, regardless of how strong you are, you're always going to be stronger, surrounded by strong people. And I guess that goes back to what you talked about probably a few months ago about building your tower up. You can either have the biggest tower in town by building the biggest tower and getting everybody around you and supporting everyone, or you can have the biggest tower by tearing everybody else down. While you're focusing on tearing everybody else's tower down, you're not focusing on making yourself better, mate. Mm. You're not focusing on making your friends better. Mm. It's a really interesting thing. I've noticed from every single guy that I've interviewed, they've said something quite similar. It's that it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Your job here is purely to support other people and build them up because every single unit of energy that you waste on tearing somebody else down is totally destructive and doesn't benefit anybody at all. Not even it's you. It's wasted energy, mate. It's wasted energy and it builds resentment in yourself because you, you can see if people put energy in tearing other people down and then regardless of how much you try, the other person is still going to get a degree of success and that in itself is going to build resentment in you and just drain you more and more. I see it in, in particularly in the online space all the time. I put up every time we've got an ad going, somebody's going to try and make some like wisecrack. I mean, you were on, a, on our ads for a little while and whatnot, and, and we've got other guys on there. And it's the stupidest, dumbest shit that people waste their time on. And here's one thing I can't fathom, right? I'm pretty busy. I don't have time to go around and click on all this shit on Facebook. In fact, I try and minimize my scrolling on Facebook and only use things that are totally productive. Who the fuck has that? That much time to go out and comment negative stuff on people's posts. Like I've got one guy called Matt who follows every single post that I post up and put something negative on. I'm like, bro, what is you? Where do you get the time? Like, I'm actually kind of curious and genuinely intrigued. Where the fuck do you get the time or the energy to invest all that negativity? Yeah, you get that time because you're not fucking doing anything productive yourself to start with, mate. Totally. Anyone who's successful couldn't be fucked tearing anyone else down, right? Yeah, mate, you, you never look down on people which are above you anyway. Mm. Well, so if, if we had to condense your learnings and your success into three things, three things that were really totally crucial in your success in Nortech, in making it a fucking massive business with a wonderful culture, in Skelter in, and in building that machine, and then in arm wrestling in your home life and in your health, if you had to give three principles that have helped you enormously, what would they be? What we talked about originally, mate, so consistency. Mm. You need to be consistent in your application. It doesn't mean that you need to go out and fucking break the world record every single day. It is just like the sum of accumulation over time. You just need to do the right things day in, day out. The next thing is you need to be honest with yourself about what you're not strong at. And once you identify that, you can actually then attract the people into your life that you need to help you support what you want to go and achieve. Mm. I'm not saying that in the sense that you go and get people and you go and use them, but you go and bring the right people into your life. Like me and you, we work together 
at the moment for myself, like I've got Sam in my business at the moment, we're working together, we're business partners, so we've got that consistency there as well. So you've got the consistency, then you've got the honesty. The third one after that, mate, would have to be, I had it in my head, but it got away from me. <laughs> we'll pick it up <laughs> next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'll give it one more go, mate. So first you'd be consistent and then you need to be honest, mate, with yourself. And then after that, yeah, I'll get back to you next time, mate. I'll give you two to start with. It's not bad. If I've got 66% for every test, mate, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> Man, thank you very much for coming on. It's really cool being able to, as much as this is a, a cool thing to do for everyone else, I really fucking, I love having guys like you on because I learn a shitload out of it. So thank you very much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to having you back on again. I appreciate it too, mate. I guess the big thing for me is like outside of all the things that you just said, um, this isn't my jam usually, you know. Mm. This wasn't an easy thing for me to sit here today and, and put myself forward like this. So that's all about personal growth. It was really good catched up again, James. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you very much, man. We'll speak soon. Love and respect, mate. Be well. Yeah, likewise, you. brother. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the video. If you got something out of it and you want to learn more, click the link below or type in High Performance Conversations with James Can, and you'll be able to check out all the podcasts that we've done. We cover a stack of different topics, everything from getting your mojo back, overcoming anxiety, self-doubt, self-esteem, and learning from some of the industries and some of the world's top performers in both business and in health. Look forward to having you on there.